Good morning, Redemption Church. Good morning. Hey, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Byron. I get the great privilege to be able to serve here as the lead pastor. If you're a guest and you're joining us today, I want to say welcome to all those who are watching online. Thank you so much for tuning in with us today. We are going to continue our study through the books of First and Second Samuel in a series that we are calling The Gospel According to David. How many of you are here today because you are excited, you're fired up, you're pumped, you're ready to have another life-giving, inspiring, motivating message about the life of David? Who's excited for a great message today? All right, well, go ahead and do me a favor and lower your expectations because today we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite subject. Today we're going to be talking about suffering. That's right. Today we're going to be talking about the subject of suffering. You know, as a pastor, my goal is to preach verse by verse through all 66 books of the Bible before the day that I retire. So far as a church, we have preached, I believe it's 11 books. And as we finish this study, it'll be 13 books. We're picking up a new book in the fall. And then we're going to teach through a book in the winter and spring. And we're going to keep doing that until the day that I retire. Why? Because here's my goal. I want to be able to say what Paul said to the Ephesians elders in Acts 20, verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring the full counsel of God's word. That means that some weeks when we come in, I'm going to be preaching inspiring messages like we did last week called How to Kill Your Giants. How do you kill a giant? You define it, you defeat it, and you declare victory over it. That was an exciting message. We have motivational messages, as we've already seen in week one of this study, what is so amazing about grace. And then the week after that, we, we learned what we do when life doesn't go as planned. As a church, we've taught studies over marriage, and we've talked about prayer. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. We've learned about Jesus. We've talked about the power of forgiveness, and we've had a lot of fun along the way. You know, some weeks whenever I preach, you know, I'm fired up. I'm excited. But then there's some weeks that I'm, I feel like I'm just ranting like an old man yelling at the clouds. Like, that's a little bit of what happened last week. I was just I was just going on a tear. I couldn't help myself, and it felt good. But other weeks, we laugh, we tell jokes, and we have a lot of fun. And then there's going to be some Sundays that are going to be like today. It's the day that I take off my preacher hat, and then I sit down, and I have a conversation with you, and I put on my pastor hat. So today in this sermon, there's not going to be a lot of preacher voice. Instead, it's going to be a very pastoral tone with my pastoral voice. And here's the reason why. It's because like Paul, I want to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. And one of the subjects that is so often forgotten when it comes to preaching is the subject of suffering. You know, you probably heard a lot of sermons about how you can succeed, but you haven't really heard a lot of sermons about how you can suffer. But here's the truth. The question is not, will I suffer? That would be great, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that just be great? Like, will I suffer? Maybe, possibly, potentially. Let's go ahead and just schedule that down for the 19th. Maybe I'll suffer. No, the question is never, will I suffer? Here's the question that I want to pose to you today, is that when you suffer, 
Will you suffer well? That's a question we should all ask ourselves. When I suffer, how will I suffer? And when it comes to suffering, will I suffer well? You know, every character in the Bible who ever did anything great guess what they had to do? They had to learn how to suffer. I mean, Abraham, he suffered. Moses, he suffered. The prophets of the Old Testament, they suffered. David, as we're going to see today, he suffered. But even into the New Testament, what do they do? They, they still experience suffering. So Peter and James and Paul and the apostles, they all lived lives of suffering. And even our Lord Jesus Guess what he had to do in his life? He had to learn how to suffer. And they would all tell you, the question is not if you suffer, the question is when you suffer, how will you suffer, and will you suffer well? You know, when I think about the subject of suffering, there is no one outside the Lord Jesus who can teach us about suffering more than my man David. And today we're going to learn from the life of David why people suffer. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. The sermon title today is Why Do God's People Suffer? Because I want you to know that when you are suffering, you are not suffering alone. That you are in good company because you're in company with men like Abraham and Moses, men like Peter and Paul, and men like David. David, he was the great king of Israel. He wrote books of the Bible. He wrote the book of Psalms. More chapters in the Bible are dedicated to his life, 66 chapters in the Old Testament. And then we see over 2,000 times, including the New Testament, David is mentioned. He is one of the most tremendous characters in all of the Bible, but yet at the same time, he experienced grief and hurt and pain and hardships, deep trauma and incredible amounts of suffering. And the question we'll see is that he, he didn't ask, will I suffer? No, because David knew that he would suffer because he did suffer. The question that we ask ourselves is, when I suffer, will I suffer well? And the way we answer that depends upon our response. And so today, if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I want to set up this message by giving you a theological underpinning of the subject of suffering. You know, one of the questions that I get asked so often is if God was good, then why do people suffer? Now, to be fair, it is a complex question which deserves a complex answer. So for example, the other day, my daughter Esther's son, she's five, she asked me, Daddy, why do I have to go to school? And what I told her is, you need to go to school so that way you can learn, that you can grow, that you can learn to do math, you can spell, you can read and write, so then you can graduate, go to college, you can get a job, you can get married, and then you can give us grandkids. I explained all that to her, but it went right over her head. She said, Daddy, I don't want to get married and have kids, go to college and have grandkids. And so in that moment, I'm like, she's not understanding what I'm saying. There's a very simple, logical explanation to this, but it's too complex for her to understand. And so I did what every parent did. I just said, because I said so. That's actually not what I did. But that's what I wanted to do, but that's actually not what I did. Because we know that the answer, because, is not actually a sufficient answer to give to people when they ask complex questions. The suffering question is a very complex question. And so many times when people ask, why do we suffer? A lot of pastors and well-meaning people, they just say, well, because that's just the way that life is. And on the surface, yes, that is true. But if we dig down a little bit deeper, it's a lot more complex than that. And so what I want to do is I want to give you a theological underpinning to answer the question why before we dive and dig into the how and the lessons that we can learn from David. 
For those of you who are suffering or have suffered, I'm gonna list these off. And what I want you to do is I want you to begin thinking about which category best describes the situation, the circumstance, or the suffering. So that way you can begin to answer the question, why? And once we start with the question why and we discover why people suffer, then we can begin to help you understand how we suffer and how we suffer well. Because remember, it is not a matter of if, it is always a matter of when. So if you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. I'm going to go fast. You can follow me on Instagram. I'll post all of this on social media. But the first reason that people suffer is because of endemic suffering. That we are all born into a fallen world with a sin nature that we have inherited from Adam. God created Adam and Eve perfect, and then they sinned, they fell, they rebelled, and then sin enters into the world, and everything in creation becomes fractured and flawed. That's one of the big reasons for sin, because we live in a fallen world. Number two, it's punishment of suffering, that God judges unbelievers, and he punishes them for their sins. So examples in the Old Testament would be that of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see this with Pharaoh. We see this with Egypt. We also see it in the New Testament with Herod as he's persecuting the church. God sends judgment. We also find it here in the text today as Saul is suffering under the judgment of God because he He's rebelled and he's turned away from him. There's a punishment suffering for those who are not believers. Number three, there's consequential suffering. Sometimes we suffer because of the decisions that we make. That we can't blame God or other people for the consequences that we face due to the decisions that we have made. We have a whole book of the Bible dedicated to this. It's the book of Proverbs. It talks about people having to walk through the consequences of their actions. Number four, demonic suffering, that Satan is alive and that he is at work in the world. And sometimes he does that through demonic suffering. And so we need to be wise. We need to be discerning so that way we can tell the difference between truth and lies and the accusations that come from the many. Number five, there's victim suffering. And this is where many of you, you've been sinned against. That it's not your sin that causes the suffering, but it's the evil actions. It is the sin of others that have been committed against you. Number six, collective suffering. That sometimes we suffer as a result of being a part of a group of people who suffer. This is the Old Testament prophets. But this is even today, people who are born in war or in genocide. This is the persecuted church overseas in Iran or in China, that there is a collective suffering. Number seven, there is a disciplinary suffering that God chastens those that he loves in order to mature them. Hebrews 12 speaks about this, that God disciplines those who he loves. And that discipline doesn't seem fun when you're receiving it, but in the end, you're grateful for it because it's helped you to become better. And so sometimes God disciplines those who he loves. Number eight, vicarious suffering that sometimes those who are in Christ, they suffer because other people oppose them. We also see what is called an empathetic suffering, that whenever someone that we love is suffering, it hurts us. This is an example of, of Jesus whenever he sees you know, Mary and Martha weeping over Lazarus, it, it causes him to cry as well. Or as Jesus surveys over the city of Jerusalem, he weeps for them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. That is an empathetic suffering that Jesus experienced. Number 10, if you're still with me, it's a testimonial suffering. That some suffering is a demonstration of the gospel so that other people are gonna be able to have a deeper appreciation um, and an understanding of 
of Jesus. And so sometimes our suffering is actually a testimony for God's goodness and his grace. Number 11, it's providential suffering. It's to teach us a lesson so that other people are able to to worship him. One great example of this would be Joseph and his imprisonment. That Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He lived in Pharaoh's house as a slave. And then he worked his way up through the ranks by receiving favor from God to where he became the right hand of Pharaoh. And then he was able to deliver his people from a time of famine. And here's how he closed it out. He said, what you meant for evil, God has turned around and he has used it for good. What is that? That is God's um, providential action in spite of our suffering. Number 12, preventative suffering. This is where God uses a little bit of suffering so that way he can prevent us from experiencing a great bit of suffering. That it's a little warning signal. It's almost kind of like a check engine light on your car. That there's this small amount of suffering that you experience that wakes you up to where you recognize that you're heading in a wrong direction. Things are not going really well. You need to repent, stop the car, and you need to turn around. That's a preventative suffering. Number 13, which I believe is the largest category, and that's just mysterious suffering, like the book of Job. Like, why? Well, there's not really an answer to it. There's some things in this life you will not learn until you get onto the other side of glory. There's a great mystery that is to be had when you walk and when you follow Jesus. There's some things that God just in his sovereignty and in his wisdom has not chosen to reveal it to us. And then lastly, there's apocalyptic affliction or suffering. We studied this in Mark chapter 13 in our uh, Living in the Last Day series as we looked at the book of Revelation. At the end of the age, an increased suffering is going to come across the planet and those believers who are there and the unbelievers, they are going to experience what is known as apocalyptic suffering. So as we study through the rest of the book of David and the lessons that we're gonna learn today, here's what I want you to do. I want for you to begin to take the situations, the circumstances, and all of the experiences that you have gone through in your life. And what I want you to do with this is I don't want you to, to view the season of life or the past experiences that you had first and foremost through the lens of suffering But instead, I want you to view it through the lens of the scriptures. I want you to view your suffering through the lens of the scriptures so that way you can have God's point of view and you can have God's perspective when it comes to the subject of suffering. Because to be honest, suffering is the one thing that we all have in common. Listen, no one gets out of life alive. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're at, what you've gone through. Every single person has experienced suffering. In fact, suffering is essential to the Christian life. You know, whenever the early church was trying to figure out what is going to be the symbol for our faith, they had a discussion trying to figure out what portrait or what imagery they were going to use to define Christianity. And some people, what they suggested was that we use the the rainbow to show God's promises. Other people, they suggested that maybe instead we use the dove to show the Holy Spirit. Maybe we use a, a fish like Jesus, the fishes and the loaves to show that God is our provider. But there was one symbol that the early Christians chose, and that was the symbol of a cross. Why would they choose the symbol of the cross? Because here's what they wanted for us to remember, is that even when we suffer, we we don't suffer alone. 
that the Lord Jesus, through his suffering, he was made perfect. And, and it's in our suffering that we are made more like Jesus. That our suffering is not pointless. Our suffering has a purpose. And through our suffering, we can be made more and more into the image of Jesus. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk to you and give you some hope, give you some help, and give you some encouragement for when you find yourself in times or seasons of deep pain, anguish, and of suffering. That's the same place that David finds himself in 1 Samuel chapter 18. And so I'm going to give you three things that we can learn from David when it comes to the subject of suffering. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Even when you are in pain, God is not punishing you. Let me say that again. Even when you are in pain, God is not punishing you. Starting in verse six, here's what it says. And as they were coming home, when David returned, he was just finished striking down the Philistine. Who's that? That is Goliath. Last week we saw that David defeated the Goliath of Gath, the champion of the Philistines. With a sling and a stone, he killed that giant dead. And afterwards, he goes back home, and here's what we read. The women came out from all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. They come out with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another and they celebrated. And here's their song. Listen to this. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David, my man David, David has killed his tens of thousands. I told you last week, David was gangster. Killed tens of thousands. But Saul, in his response, he was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David tens of thousands and me only thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David and from that day on and the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, the harp. As he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled his spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Now, as the old saying goes, spear me once, shame on me. Spear me twice, shame on you. Listen to how this story is unfolding. Here we see the jealousy, the envy, the rage of a wicked king named Saul against a young shepherd boy who is the future king named David. In the chapters leading up to this, we have seen David to be chosen, to be anointed. He has built a great reputation. He's built influence. He's living on top of the mountain. He goes and he slays the Goliath, the giant Goliath. And when he comes back, people are singing songs songs about him. They're like, Saul has killed his thousands, but David, David has killed his tens of thousands. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in the middle of the greatest moment of his life, all of a sudden, what was that? It was a spear. And then, what is that? There's more spears. Out of nowhere, the king begins throwing spears, hunting him down, and trying to kill him. In fact, over the next 10 chapters, throughout the remainder of 1 Samuel, Saul will try to kill David 21 times. And this marks the beginning of the years of suffering that David will experience. And here's what I want you to know, dear Christian, that when you are in pain, God is not punishing you. If you're taking notes, go ahead, do me a favor, write this down. There's two views when it comes to suffering. That suffering is either a courtroom 
or suffering is a classroom. Many people, when they think about suffering, they, they view suffering as if it's a courtroom where God is punishing you. You do something wrong, God is punishing you. Life goes wrong, God is punishing you. As if God is some deadbeat, heavenly father who's drunk up in heaven, just waiting for you to mess up so he can throw lightning bolts and so that he can beat you. Many times people, when they're suffering, here's the question they ask, God, why? God, what's going on? God, what did I do? God, why am I suffering? God, why are you punishing me? You ever said that? You ever thought that? It's because you have a theology where suffering is a courtroom. Probably one of the most horrific experiences that I've had with this is a, a friend of mine who actually served in ministry together in, in New York. We knew each other whenever we were in high school. His mom was diagnosed with cancer. And the pastor of the church, he told him and his family, the reason your mom has cancer is because she has unrepentant sin in her life. And so she prayed and she prayed and she prayed. And God didn't heal her and eventually his mother died. And then as he went to the church, here's what the pastor told him. He said, the reason your mother died is because she didn't have enough faith that God could heal her. Now my friends, hearing that, he began to reject God. He rejected the faith, walked away from the church in Jesus. Today, they would say he deconstructed. Back then, we would say he just backslid. And for many years, he turned away from the Lord. But in his 20s, God captured his heart. He came to a correct understanding that suffering is not a courtroom, but rather it is a classroom. It's not a courtroom where God is punishing you, but suffering is a classroom where God is teaching you. You ever ask the question, God, why? Okay, that's a okay question when you're in pain, but here's a better question. Instead of asking God why, you should ask the question, God, what? God, what are you teaching me and who? God, who are you preparing me to be a blessing towards? Who can I bless? Who can I love? Who can I serve? Here's the reason why suffering is, is not a courtroom. Theologically, is that at the cross, there was a great exchange. The Lord Jesus he suffered in our place. This is what is known as the doctrine of propitiation, that we are sinners and the wages of sin is death and that we all deserve judgment and punishment and we all deserve the eternal wrath of God on our lives because of our, our sins. But God didn't see it fit to leave us in our sins. Instead, here's what he did. He sent Jesus, his only son, to live the perfect life, the life without sin, in our place for our sins. So that way, when he goes to the cross and he dies in our place, he becomes the propitiation for our sins. That means all of our sins are placed on Jesus. All of his sinlessness has been placed onto us. All of his righteousness has been given to us and he takes all of our unrighteousness and all of the judgment and the suffering has been placed upon the shoulders of Jesus and instead we are declared healthy, whole, righteous, holy, welcomed, adopted, beloved, and we are declared not guilty. When the gavel of God drops on the life of a believer, here's what he says, not guilty. Why? Because Jesus paid it all for us. Can I get an amen, somebody? This is what Jesus does for us. Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. Therefore, it is not a courtroom, but rather it is a classroom. It's a classroom where God is teaching us, God is helping us to place our hope in him, to place our trust in him, to develop a prayer life, to lean on and to depend on the scriptures. Dear Christian, God is not punishing you because it would be unjust and unrighteous for God to punish two people for the same sins. 
So God is not punishing you, but instead, God is preparing you, he is teaching you, and he is developing you. Let me read you some scriptures to encourage you. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself, that's Jesus, bears our sins so that we might die to sin and that we might live righteous. By his wounds, you have been healed. First John 2, 1, 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why? He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of of the whole world, Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but what? To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then my favorite, Romans 8, 1. Now there is no condemnation. How much condemnation is there? Redemption, how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free, you are forgiven, you are healed, you are welcomed, you are beloved, you are loved, and God declares not guilty. So suffering is not a courtroom, but rather suffering is a classroom. Jesus already bore the punishment for your sins. When God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your shame. All he sees is Jesus. All he sees is the precious blood of Jesus, not your guilt, not your past. He doesn't see the mistakes that you've made. Here's what he sees. He sees Jesus. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are holy. You are whole. You are made new. The old is gone and the new has come. Dear Christian, suffer is not a courtroom. Suffering is a classroom. There is a university that God sends his children to. Many enroll, but only a few graduate. It is long, it is hard, and it requires patience and perseverance. Why? Because it is the school of suffering. So instead of asking God, why is this happening? Turn around and pointing the finger at God. What we need to ask is, God, what are you teaching me? What can I learn from this? How can I grow through this? And who can I help because of this? One of my favorite books is a book called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. If you come on staff or leadership at the church, it's a required read. And it's about, it's about King David and the two kings that preceded and came after him. And he writes this as a commentary following the slaying of David and Goliath. And these verses, here's what he says. He says, do you find it strange that this remarkable event, talking about the killing of Goliath, led the young man not to the throne where he's the future king, he didn't immediately ascend to the throne, but rather to the hellish agony of suffering. On that day, David was enrolled not into the lineage of royalty, but rather into the school of brokenness. Friends, suffering is not a courtroom, it is a classroom. It is not where God is punishing you, but rather it is where God is preparing you for greater things. Number one, what we learn is this, is that even when you are a pain, God is not punishing you. Number two, here's what we learn. Even when life is awful, God can still do something awesome. There's multiple attempts that Saul makes to kill young David, and each one of them fell. And so here's what the wicked king does. He comes up with a plan. He decides, since I can't kill him with my own hand, I am going to put him on the front lines of battle, and I'm going to withdraw the troops so that way we'll let the Philistines kill him. Look, look at this plot unfold in verse 20. Now, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. 
And they told Saul, and this pleased him. So Saul thought, let me give her to him so that she might be a snare in the hands of the Philistines against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold the king has delight in you, and all of his servants love you. Now then, because of the king's son-in-law, and Saul's servant spoke these words in the ears of David, and David says, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul said to him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king's desires no bride price except for, get this, a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. That's crazy. Whenever me and Ashley were getting married, she's Korean, and it's a part of Korean culture that the husband gets the bride's family a goose. And so I went out, I got a ceramic goose, and I proposed to Ashley. I brought the goose to her parents' house, and the goose is still sitting there. It's kind of the same thing, but it's a little different, amen? Okay, instead of just getting a goose, come back with 100 foreskins of the Philistines. I'm going to keep reading. Here's, here's what it says. It says, when the servants told David these words, here's what it says. It pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose, went along with his men, and he killed not 100, but 200 Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which was given the full number to the king, so that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. I mean, this story keeps just getting crazier and crazier, does it not? I mean, first it starts with Saul throwing spears at him, and when he noticed the spears is unable to kill David. Instead, he comes up with a plot to murder him in battle, but he knows that he's gonna have to come up with a trick to be able to get David to accept this nearly impossible mission. So he says, hey, David, I'm gonna let you marry my daughter and become the son-in-law to the king, enter into royalty, but first, you have to come back with 100 Philistine foreskins. Okay, now listen, if you don't know what a foreskin is, don't Google it, okay? Just don't, don't Google it. If you don't know what it is, I can't help you, right? In this part of my message, to be honest, I had a long list of foreskin jokes that I was gonna make, but because of time restraints, I had to cut them out. Okay, okay, moving on. Um, psychologists call this compound trauma. It's where when one thing falls apart and all of a sudden the entire bottom falls out. For example, you don't just lose your job, but you lose your job, you lose your income. Now your house is foreclosed, you get your car repoed, your kids have to relocate. It's a compound suffering in your life. And we see it in other areas, like when you get divorced, you lose your friends, you lose your family, custody of your kids, you lose your house, you have to move, and all of your life is thrown up, your standard of living is changed, and it's not just one thing or one area, but all of a sudden, it impacts and affects every other area of your life. It's not just one trauma, but it's multiple traumas on top of each. Anybody ever experience this? Okay, if that's you, just let me go ahead and say, I am incredibly sorry for the suffering that you have experienced in your life. But here's what I want you to know is that even when life is awful, God can still do something awesome. Even though 
David is having spears thrown at him and he's in the middle of a murder plot. The king is trying to kill him. He's being shipped off to war. He's required to bring back 100 Philistine foreskins. But yet look what it says. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David, circle that, underline it, highlight it. It pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And so before time expired, David arose, went along with his men and he killed 200 Philistines. David understands something that is going to help all of us when we experience suffering. And here's what it is, is that the battle that we face so oftentimes is not of our circumstances, but rather it is of our perspective. The battle we face is not of our circumstances, but it is our perspective. Let me tell you this, is that there are situations in your life that you will never be able to control, but you can control your perspective. You may not be able to control the circumstances, but you can control your perspective. See, David, he understood that even though his circumstances were awful, he believed that God could still do something awesome. If you're taking notes, write this down. Your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. If you believe that you are a victim, guess what you're going to do? You're going to live as if you're a victim. If you believe that you are always going to have the world against you, then you're gonna live as if the world is always against you. If you believe that you are a failure, then you're gonna continue to live your life as a failure. If you believe that the situation that you're in is the best that you can do, then the situation you're in is always gonna be the best that you can do, why? Because your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. But if you believe that God is good, then you're gonna live as if God is good. If you believe that God is for you, then you're gonna live as if God is for you. If you believe that God loves you and cares for you, that he answers your prayers, then you are going to live your life out of that perspective because our behaviors are a result of our beliefs and our life is always moving in the direction of the strongest thoughts that we have. You may not be able to control your circumstances, but you can control your perspective even in the midst of it. This is the reason why two people can go to the same schools and one can not graduate and the other can graduate. They had the same education, the same opportunities, but yet there's different outcomes. This is why at work, your boss can give you and another person the same feedback. One person, they're gonna get all upset and bitter and angry. Oh my God, I can't believe you would say that or talk to me that way. How dare you? Do you know what I do for this company? You don't deserve to talk to me like that. And the other person can get that same feedback and say, hey, thank you, apply it to their life, and they can actually do a better job and eventually move up in the company because it's a matter of their mindsets. One person can grow up in the same neighborhood and become a drug addict, and the other person from that same neighborhood can become a police officer. Listen, you are not a victim of your circumstances, but so oftentimes we are victims of our perspectives. It's what we think, it's how we live that determines the type of life that we experience. This is why Paul tells us that we are to take every thought what? Captive. You have to take captive the thoughts that are in your mind. Because whether you think you can or you think you can't, either way, guess what? You're right. Your life is always moving in the directions of your strongest thoughts. When you are suffering, what is the thoughts that you're telling yourself? What is the narrative that is going on through your head? Are you believing the truth from God's word or are you believing the lies that come from the enemy? Are you getting better 
or are you getting bitter? It's all about your perspective because your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Listen, right now, it is trendy for people to say, it's okay to not be okay. You ever heard that? You ever seen it posted on social media, Facebook? You see the memes? I've seen pastors say it, secular self-help people say it all the time. It's okay to not be okay. You ever heard that? Okay, you know what? I agree with that for the most part because it is okay to not be okay. I mean, through the Bible, we see Abraham, not okay. Moses, not okay. David, in this situation, not okay. Peter, Paul, in their life, not okay. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he cries out and prays, he was not okay. I want you to know, if you're not okay, it is okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay that way. It's not okay to be okay with not being okay. Eventually, you have to reach a point to where you decide you want to do something about it. I get so concerned with millennials and Gen Z and young adults because here's what I'm beginning to notice is it seems to me like mental illness is a badge of honor for this generation, as if mental health is now an identity statement. People say, I have anxiety, I have depression. That's okay if you struggle or suffer or experience anxiety and depression, but don't let anxiety have you. Don't let depression have you. You gotta adjust the narrative. You have to fix your mindset, change your perspective, because you don't want to come into agreement with the negativity that is in your life. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay for you to stay that way. I'm encouraging you, I'm helping you to try to do something about it. Don't just go through it, grow through it so that God can do something better in spite of it. So let me give five encouragements to Christians in this room right now that I know are, are, are suffering, that are, are struggling, and you're looking for answers, you're looking for hope, you're looking for healing. Let me give you five really quick brief encouragements. Number one, when you are suffering, process your pain through prayer. Jesus actually invites us to do this in the book of Matthew. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you what? Rest. Jesus invites us to transfer our burden and to process our pain through prayer. Number two, seek help from wise, godly counselors. Proverbs tells us that the battle is won with the counsel of many. Go find a Christian biblical therapist. I have one, his name's Mark. We meet every Wednesday. He's awesome. He's helping me work through some of the processing that I need to do in my life to be a better husband, father, and pastor. If you need a therapist, last week we had several people reach out and message me. They're getting help. I want you to get help. I can recommend one. Send me a message. I'll help you find it. But seek help from biblical counselors. Number three, surround yourself with godly friends. We just finished the book of Colossians, and in the first chapter, he, he says, remember my chains, and he writes about his suffering because of the gospel. How does that book close in the final chapter? It's just a big, long list. It's a shout out to all of his friends. One of my favorite quotes is this, a good friend makes the bad times half as good and the good times twice as good. Isn't that so true? We need to surround ourselves with godly friends and godly influences. Number four, don't just grieve and leave. What do I mean by that? At the end of every single service, here's what we offer. We offer open ministry, altars, and prayer time. 
And so many times I see people crying as they they leave the lobby and go back to their lives. They come to church, they hear a sermon over suffering, and they grieve, and they process, and they think about their life and experiences, and then at the end of the message, they just get up and walk out the doors exactly the same way that they came in. Listen, please, if you are suffering, here's my encouragement. Don't just grieve and leave, but stay and pray. James says it like this, if any one of you is suffering, Come to the front, let the elders anoint you with oil. Why? So that you might be healed. God doesn't want you to grieve and leave. He wants you to be able to stay and pray. And then lastly, number five, is to hold on to the promises of God. What are the promises of God? Here's what God says. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I will never give up on you. But I will be with you always for how long? Until the very end of the age. Even when life is is awful. Have hope to know that God can still do something awesome. Which leads to the third point is that even when life goes wrong, you can still choose to do what is right. See, the story continues just like this for about six more chapters, all the way until the end of the book of 1 Samuel, where we pick up next week in 2 Samuel. And here's what David's doing. David is dodging spears. He is weeping. He is crying. He is tormented. He is running from his life. He finds himself in battles. He's on the front lines of war. He's being tortured. And then all of a sudden, he is outcast, and he finds himself living among the caves. He goes from the fields at his father's house to the palace, and now he finds himself outcasted, living in the caves in chapter 25. And some of you, this is where you find yourself at today. You, you feel like you're living in a cave, a cave of depression, a cave of hardship, a cave of anxiety, a cave of grief, a cave of pain, a cave of suffering. It's the cave of sorrows. You find yourself in this cave. It is dark, it is lonely, it is hurting, and then all of a sudden, guess who walks in? Saul does. David has an opportunity to put an end to his suffering. And here's what he says. When Saul returned, verse 24, when Saul returned from the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and they began to seek David and his men from the Wingoat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. So he goes in the cave, he's gonna use the restroom and it's the same cave that David is in. And David and his men, they were sitting there in the innermost part of the cave and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall be good to you. Then David arose This is his opportunity. This is his moment. And stealthily, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart, it says it struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David here, he has the opportunity to kill Saul. He could have put an end to all of the pain that he was experiencing. He could have lashed out. He could have done to Saul what Saul had done to him. And I think for a moment that he was even tempted. He said, you know, 
I could get away with this and nobody would bat an eye or think differently because if anything, I deserve this. After all the things that I have gone through and all the suffering that I have endured and experienced, it's my time, my moment to get even. But here's the problem. When you get even, it makes you even. When you get even, it makes you even. You become no different than the person, than the situation, than the trauma or the event that causes your experience. Listen, just because life goes wrong, it doesn't give you permission to be disobedient to God. When life goes wrong, you still have the ability to choose to do what is right. It says after he cut off the cloak of Saul, what happens? His heart struck him that he felt remorse and conviction. And he says, Lord forbid that I should do anything towards my Lord. I do not want to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Listen, for those of you who have suffered from extreme difficulty and hardships in your life, I know that I, it is incredibly difficult for you to hear this message and I am incredibly sorry for what you have gone through and what you have experienced. I, I really am, but can I just tell you that blaming God and punishing others will not alleviate the suffering that you've experienced. Blaming God and punishing others and pushing people away and living in isolation, withdrawing from relationship or willfully choosing to live a life of sin because of your suffering will not alleviate the trauma or the pain or the suffering that you've experienced. It will only add to it and it will continue to make matters worse. Listen, a parent does not heal by traumatizing their child. A spouse does not heal from their trauma by inflicting more pain upon their spouse, which means that you will never heal from the hurts that you've experienced by lashing out or by giving out pain or punishment to one another. So oftentimes, here's what happens, is that those who have been victimized ends up becoming the same people who oppress and who push and who bring pain into other people's lives. If you don't work it out, eventually you're gonna act it out on other people. Your trauma does not give you permission to bring trauma upon other people. Listen, your suffering is so expensive. It's so expensive. Here's what God wants to do. God wants to break the cycle, to bring deliverance. He wants to step in and set your soul free. Even when things go wrong, you still have a choice to do what is right. Your suffering is so expensive. It has cost you too much in this life. It has cost you relationships. It has cost you jobs. It has cost you your marriage. It has cost you intimacy. It has cost you your children. It has cost you relationships. It has cost you nights of sleep. It has cost you your physical health, your mental health, and your spiritual growth. Your suffering has cost so much, which means your suffering is too expensive for you to let it go to waste. Listen to me. Don't waste your suffering. Instead, you invest it. 
Don't let your suffering go to waste. Instead, use your suffering, invest your suffering to grow closer to God, to help others. Use it to experience his goodness and mercies in ways that you had never experienced before. Use it as an act of worship to break the jar of your life and to pour yourself out. Use it to bring blessings and breakthrough to those who are in need. Listen, whatever you do, don't waste your suffering. Invest your suffering because your suffering costs you too much. It's too expensive for you to allow your suffering to go to waste. Don't waste your suffering. Instead, invest it. Invest your suffering and watch what God will do. You see, friends, the question is not, will you suffer? Why? Because the answer is yes, resounding yes. You and me and everybody in this life It's the one thing that we have in common that we will all suffer. The question is not if you suffer. The question is not when you suffer. The question is when you suffer, will you suffer well? You will experience suffering and even our Lord Jesus. God, very God, the second member of the Trinity. He was familiar with suffering. The Bible says that he was acquainted with grief, that he bore our iniquities. He was a man of sorrows. He was no stranger to suffering. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. As I close out and we call the band up here on stage, here's what it says. Now in putting everything subjection to him, that's the Lord Jesus. That's his sovereignty. That's his authority. That all of creation is under his rule and his reign. He is our great king. It says he has left nothing outside of his control. And at present, we do not yet see everything that is in subject to him. This is the big mystery question. I gave you 14 applications of suffering and causes. And number 13 was what? Mysterious suffering. We just don't No, there are things in this life that we're just not going to know. And you know what? I know it's not the favorite answer in a instant gratification Google generation, but here's the answer. You cannot Google it because it's a mystery. Why? I don't know. Sit down with people in pastoral counseling and they, they ask me that, why did this happen? And you know what I have to say? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Why? Because it says here is that, well, we don't always see everything. We don't understand everything. And there are some things in this life that are just, just a mystery. But here's, here's what we do see is this. We do not understand, but we see him who for a little while was made a little lower than the angels. That's Jesus leaving heaven, entering into this world, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There it is. That's the propitiation of our sins. That we serve a God who suffers. We serve a God who weeps. We serve a God who cried. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He's the prince of preachers, that great Baptist from the 18th century. And here's what he says. He says, a Jesus who never cried would never be able to wipe away my tears. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse, but it's probably one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. In the picture of Revelation, it gives us a portrait of the Lord Jesus at the end of all things. As we stand face to face with him, it says this, that he will wipe away 
every tear. Why can Jesus wipe away our tears? Because Jesus knows what it's like to suffer as well. Hebrews continues and he says by encouraging us that Jesus gets it. He understands, he sympathizes, he knows what it's like. In verse 10 it says this, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by all things exist, bringing many sons to glory, that's you, through his suffering, many sons and daughters, that is you, that is you, that is you, that is everybody who is watching online or anybody in the future who watches this on a sermon archive, you and you, many sons to glory should be the founder of their salvation to be perfected through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. I want to close with a photo. They're going to throw it up on the screens, and, and many of you know what this photo is. What is this photo? This photo is a, is a portrait of the sculpture by Michelangelo. It's the sculpture of David. It's probably one of the most famous works of art in all of human history. We've all seen it, maybe through textbooks and art books, or maybe we've studied it or we've seen it online or at a museum. Everyone's familiar with this. That's how popular and famous the life of David is. And Michelangelo, he, he carved this out of a large slab of marble. And when they asked Michelangelo, they said, how did you carve something so beautiful? You know what he said? Here's what he said. All I did was I removed the parts that didn't belong. Here, what the author of Hebrews says is this is called sanctification. Michelangelo, he called it art. But as Christians, as believers, we call it sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the process of being conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. That marble slab, by the removal of all of the different layers, was being conformed into the image of David. But through our suffering, at work with the source of the Spirit, God is removing the parts of us that don't belong to reveal underneath what God created inside of us the entire time. Here's what we see is this, is that God can take what is broken and he can turn it into something beautiful. God can take what is broken, and he can turn it into something beautiful in your life. Michelangelo, when he's carving that David sculpture, it had to have been a little bit painful. Think about it. Taking a hammer and a chisel and beating and sculpting and shaping and removing all of the parts that didn't belong. For you and me, whenever we experience suffering in this life, it's the same thing. That there is a shaping, a molding, a conforming, and for a moment it is painful. For a moment it hurts. For a moment it is sorrowful. For a moment it is suffering. But the end result is that God takes what was broken and he turns it into something that is what? That is beautiful. I believe this is what we learn in the lesson of suffering is that even when we feel broken, God is still able to pick up the pieces and he is able to shape us and mold us and he is able to make us even more beautiful than we were when we began. As your pastor, I have the great honor to be able to teach the Bible. Some parts of it are really fun. Some parts of it are really hard. But you know what? That's how life is. And so thank you for allowing me the privilege and honor to be your pastor. 
in just a moment, I'm going to hand it off to one of your staff pastors, and they're going to close out the service, and they're going to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus. But I just want to take a moment. I want to pray over each and every one of you. I want to pray because I know many of you are suffering. You have suffered, and you're walking through this right now. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, let me just take a moment and let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I love my church so much. What a great blessing and privilege it is to be able to to serve. And God, I know that this week there are many people in in our church who are suffering and hurting. I know many of them, they didn't plan for life to go this way. I know many of them have suffered at the hands of others and many have suffered because of their own consequences. And Lord, I know that you forgive and I know that you heal, but right now I'm asking that you would just bring peace. Peace into their heart, peace into their life, peace into their mind. And God, I would ask that you would grant them strength. Strength to be able to persevere, strength to be able to hope, strength to be able to trust, and strength to be able to depend on you. Father, I also ask that you would send godly friends in their life. Surround them with believers who are going to encourage them and bless them to build them up and not tear them down and to call out the David or the Jesus that is inside each and every single one of us. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. At this moment, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to our staff pastors. Let's give God a big shout of praise today. Amen, amen, amen.